Welcome, welcome back. It's Jokerman Podcast once more. I'm Evan. I'm Ian. And today, uh, to discuss an album made by John Cale collaborator, Nico, uh, we have a John Cale collaborator of our very own, Natalie Maring, who you might know better as Wiseblood. Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. That was smooth, Ian. That was so smooth of you. I'm trying to professionalize you. Listen, we got two podcasts now, one of them with a respected I'm, rock journalist. I'm not journalist. being, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not uh, pulling your leg. That was, no, that I was nice. It's, and it's true. You literally did just collaborate with John Cale. That is the a true John statement. Kale. Yeah. I know. It made me feel really um, like I made it. Like I made it somehow, for sure. Can you tell us, I mean, if you're, if he made you sign an NDA, it's completely understood. But if, if he didn't, we would love to hear anything about what that was like or like what your experience was with him. You know, it was really cool. So the way it all came about was I interviewed him for a magazine over the phone. And I just had so many weird, deep cut kind of questions um, that I think he could tell that I was a really big fan. Sure. And we talked for a really long time, and, and then I think he heard my music after that and invited me to come by the studio and sing. So it was really serendipitous. And we actually recorded four or five years ago, that song. Really? Wow. But he was just really, he changed it many times, and it had many different um, evolutions. But there's a version of it where I'm actually singing lyrics, too. Um, really? But he kind of kept all the more choral stuff. But, yeah, it, it's it was a fun experience because i came to the studio and like it was just all black and he just had a bunch of little kitty player pianos hell yeah like those little tiny like what are they called like fisher price kind of like ding 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 yeah 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 like they were everywhere and i was like oh my god these (laughs) that's like the only instrument in this whole studio but they weren't on the recording at all and i heard later that at the end of making the record he smashed them all like as a some kind of a, a ceremony yeah, some kind of ceremony. But um, basically, he told me the song was called Story of Blood. And I was like, well, that's perfect for me. And uh, <laughs> he kept trying to get me to sing lower and lower and lower. And he was really surprised at how low I could sing. And um, yeah, I felt like he made some comments about Nico. There was like a moment where I definitely felt like he was extracting wow. out of me because I was such a huge Nico fan and emulator when I was really young. Right. When I first started playing music, it was really kind of all about that. So that was really cool. Um, very, very like holistic, full circle experience for me. Incredible. Yeah. Lo and behold, four plus years later, it finally came out and sounds like a completely different piece of music, which I think is a testament to how much he kind of, yeah, like shifts around and, and goes with the the flow and like modernizes, which I really appreciate. Right. So that was before, that was even like before Titanic Rising came out, he brought you in. Yeah. Damn, man. I mean, I didn't even, I knew you you were like a really good idea to have as a guest for this particular record. And that's just another great reason why that's the case. Like if you were even kind of acting as a a Nico surrogate in a fucking John Cale song. (laughs) Uh, Here's the record produced by John Cale, um, second or third of those. I think it's third. Second well, of the John like, ones. Second John Third produced, yeah. Nico record, yeah. Right. Desert and Shore, 1970. Desert Shore. So you mentioned, I think, Natalie, that this was like this record in particular was one you were down to talk. What is it about? What is it about this one or just like this era of Nico in general that 
picks up for you? Well, I feel like it's kind of like pagan time travel. Like, I feel like her, like, I feel like Marble Index was really her kind of finding her speed and like kind of the elegance of what she, the minimalism and the elegance of what she was trying to do. And this one was like going even deeper into like the tribal European connection. Right. <laughs> John Cale. Like, I just feel like it makes sense. Her first record sounds the way it does. Cause it's like, you know, American, Americans kind of like jerking off to the American dream or something. And then right. now they get to, you know, play kind of medieval pagan druid, um, <laughs> you know, like just the Europeans really going off. And I, I feel like you can really kind of hear it. There's like this kind of this beautiful ancient, um, sentiment with um yeah kind of like john kale's like modern um qualities yeah it's an accurate uh representation of things it's a fascinating kind of sound i think and like nico in general like has sort of like by this point in time really tried to i think like kill her past to the best of her ability her past being obviously the first velvets record and the first solo record which like we talked about in the first episode with hers uh she didn't write any of those songs. You know, she was almost acting as sort of an automaton, just kind of reproducing music and lyrics that were given to her or sort of foisted upon her by uh, uh, the male musicians and producers in her life. No, fantastic, obviously, but, you know, she lacked a degree of autonomy there. And so I think with uh, Marble Index and certainly Desert Shore, like it's a clear kind of move on her part to just like strike out on her own path and illustrate like, the, uh, me when I'm about is like it's a totally different thing than what you might have expected or where I was initially which is a really admirable kind of thing I love that this one doesn't reference um any other men really right um and it's like the closest thing in the like musically at the time that might you could draw comparisons or like steel eye span or something or like Fairport convention mm. but it it's definitely not that like it kind of stands on its own like she really is kind of her own minstrel, even though I think if we, you know, flash back 400, 500 years, it would just sound pretty normal. Right. <laughs> this is, is cutting edge avant-garde shit in 1970, but 1470, this is just yeah. what you hear in the village yeah. square. <laughs> yeah, it's what the ladies are doing all the time. Yeah, no, I, I think that being, you know, so deeply hippie and free in the 60s kind of cracked the egg open to the time travel. Totally. Yeah. And it makes sense that she wanted to go back to because rock and roll was probably like, you know, it was like annoying to be constantly treated like a side piece and not like you didn't have your own ideas. And, you know, it must have been really hard making a record with producers who told her what to do. Right. And I think that's kind of what's so special about John is that he saw like, oh, if we just let you do exactly what you want and I'll just help you make that a reality, like it's going to be more um, like the iconoclast that we now know. Totally. Yeah, I love kind of thinking about Marble Index and Desert Shore as like like alternate dimension Velvet Underground records, which because they really are like Nico and John collaborations, you know, and both of them yeah. having been kicked out of the band, obviously, after the first record for Nico and the second record for John. It's almost like they created their own like shadow Velvet Underground here on their own, you know, off to the side. And this is this is the output. Uh, which, you know, doesn't really bear too much resemblance to a lot of what was going on in the first couple of Velvets records. But like you actually, you know, I think I think there are a lot of like, um, you know, if you, if you pay attention, there's a lot of kind of uh, common ancestors there and things like Black Angel Death Song, for instance, um, and just like the really kind of eerie droning 
um, unsettling feeling that you get on some of the most uh, intense Velvet songs off the first couple records. You get that here, but also with its own unique kind of dimension of, like we said, you know, kind of medieval sound and uh, a real ethereal uh, kind of quality. I'm sure a word that has been used to describe Nico nine million times. Yeah, I think it's that they're both European. They're not American. Like when they go off and do their own thing, it's going to be different. Totally. In that one performance that we talked about uh, in Paris, was it the one where it's the three of them? Yeah, the 70, Bataclan 72. There is this really strong sense of that, this partnership kind of taking shape and, and you see this synergy between uh, John and Nico. And it's a, it seems really palpable that like they're the, exactly what uh, you're saying, that there's kind of this um, like the home court feeling of them both being uh the uh having this kind of like home field advantage i think they home field advantage yeah of, <laughs> like yeah this uh epigenetic memory of uh drawing back into the uh the deep past anglo-saxon ancestry yeah. um well should we just uh should we just do it let's let's Side one, track one, janitor of lunacy. You are, we are into into the the Nico world right away with the harmonium uh, on this record, which is kind of the defining sound of this and the Marble Index, uh, and almost I think even more so on on Desert Shore, because um, uh, it's really an uncompromising kind of sound and totally unique uh, in the 1970, you know, kind of pop rock record world at least that she was uh, orbiting the song sounds so huge right from the jump and yet it's so kind of simple and basic and bare bones at the same time it's like a magic trick i think it's also it's about brian jones right that's that's the legend yeah one of many people with whom nico had some sort of you know uh, a romantic tryst. and i've heard or read that it was jim morrison who suggested she use the harmonium oh no shit that blows my mind which is like exactly <laughs> yeah, like, that makes so much was, sense yeah they were brother and sister i love that you know because it feels like especially like uh kind of poetically significant considering his was a band with an organ instead of a bassist it's just like there is this kind of organ connection there Sounds oh, weird sure. to say. Yeah, no. I, I feel like the doors also like if they were time travelers, like they were all film students, they're mm-hmm. all like cinematographers. So the doors to me, yeah, they, it kind of has a different kind of um, lineage musically. And, you know, Jim Morrison was really into like crooners and schlock and William Blake and like kind of these weird kind of gothy pagan things as well. So right. I, I feel like he also, I feel like he stole a lot of his look from, members of the you know velvet underground scene like when he went to the factory i think there's i forget the guy's name who would wear all leather and after that jim morrison started wearing a lot of leather 
Um, but yeah, I can see there, there's like a, a loophole of um, vibes that kind of spread to the doors from elsewhere. Yeah, I think we've we've talked about that on the show at one point, like the doors is being like the the Los Angeles like equivalent of the, of Velvets, the Velvets in a weird at, way at that time. Not, you know, you know, artistically speaking, their output, I don't think, you know, really measures up, obviously. Uh, but just in terms of like the West Coast, you know, mirror image of what was going on in New York, like they seem to define that era on um, or in Los Angeles uh, the same way that the Velvets do that era in New York. So it makes sense that Nico somehow goes from New York East Coast, you know, Lou world to Los Angeles West Coast Morrison world, um, you know, a- after she exits. I think that the, the, the apocryphal story that she and Morrison went to Joshua Tree or somewhere down out there, you know, outside of Palm Springs and Trip Peyote, and that was kind of the um, uh, the door unlocking into her writing her own music and lyrics and pursuing the sound that she did on Marble Index in this record. Yeah, definitely. Well, he was also like a real poet, so he probably wanted her to write. Right. The actual words of janitor of lunacy, like it's just a really unsettling and freaky title and for a song, I, I always thought it's like yes. a, a way to kick off a record <laughs> just to completely like trip you from under. I really don't know exactly what it means, but it doesn't, it sounds like it might be bad. Ha- Doesn't sound good. <laughs> Janitor of lunacy. The way I, th- I see it is like somebody who's actually kind of like taking care of it, like keeping it alive. Um, janitorial quality to, to maintain the, the insanity, um, which could also be interpreted as just like raw energy. Um, you know, not giving a fuck. <laughs> it would inter- interpret it a lot of different ways. I always thought it was like, the, it was almost like the janitor was um, kind of, taking care of preserving the lunacy. <laughs> That's right. a good interpretation. I didn't, I didn't think about that. I was just imagining like a janitor in a insane asylum. I think the first time I heard this, um, oh, yeah, but yours is great. much more, uh, probably closer to what, what's being said. I think throughout the record, I'm, I think a, a good way for me to just approach it has been to think about how it might be saying something personal and I think that, that you see that at various points where it feels like, oh, this one really is personal feeling. And then other ones that seem more abstract might start to appear that way, too. Yeah. I also think like most artists are insane. And I think she really, <laughs> and especially if she had a lot of, you know, connections and romantic moments with them. She herself might be a janitor of lunacy, you know. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think like we talked about with Sabrina on the first one and like anyone who's, you know, uh, at all familiar with Nico's backstory, she's, you know, had had some some skeletons in her closet, had some ghosts in her past. So uh, on top of, you know, most artists being insane, uh, this particular artist uh, beyond that, I think, just was like deeply traumatized and that can't help but like express itself in her music. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love the pairing also of the, the words janitor and lunacy janitor being such like a pedestrian, you know, kind of word, just like a random kind of like, you know, like, uh, like a fucking stenographer or like secretary or something, just like the most boring kind of professional, um, you know, uh, basic kind of 
standard word that you encounter in everyday English, and then lunacy, which has so much, you know, loaded, weighted meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just makes for a really fascinating kind of dichotomy, and I, I think speaks to her way of writing lyrics, which is really distant and obtuse at certain points, but also I think is is doing that in a way to almost kind of mask or cover up the personal nature of some of these songs. Because I think this one, I mean, it being about Brian Jones, like, I, I think there is some stuff to pull out there. And, and you know, if you parse through it, uh, if you read the words off the page, it's a little harder to do when you're just listening to the music. But I think there is something that she's saying about this person here in this song, you know? I was just thinking, I'm like, what a... What a- Besides Janitor of Lunacy, what does she say? Yeah, it's... Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a look here. Janitor of Tyranny. Yeah. Which is, you know, a very different idea. Tolerate my jealousy. Recognize the desperate need. Identify my... De- yeah, there's... Identify my destiny. Revive the living dream. Forgive their begging scream. Sealed giving of their seed disease. The breathing grief. You know, it's... Disease, the grief, that could be, (laughs) you know, that's a really interesting, if this is a love song, it's like uh, one that feels quite morbid, but is nonetheless, I think, that feels like to to disease someone's grief. Breathing grief. You're you're diseasing their grief. (laughs) I would like to like kill your grief. Yeah, and I guess Brian Jones had just passed, I think, the year before this song had come out, so... You know, as as sort of a obituary, right? Or, or um, an you know, elegy. a way of an elegy, sure, eulogy, uh, more an elegy. Uh, you know, kind of. I think you get some of that. It doesn't seem like it was necessarily <laughs> something where she's trying to say like this is good or this was bad. It's just like this is my experience with this guy from a very distant, you know, removed place lyrically. It's like kind of maybe acknowledging whoever it's about as kind of having a a positive dark side. Yeah, the dark side is soulful. Mm-hmm. Like Batman, positive dark side. <laughs> yeah, Nico. Well, Nico dressed as Batman. You remember that? Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, in the photo Matt. shoot with Andy. That was cute. <laughs> that's probably uh, what this is. This is probably a concept album about that. Exactly. Well, speaking of Andy, song two, The Falconer, a song about one. <laughs> and, Robin? Andy Warhol. No, it's, it's about Andy Warhol. Yeah, he dressed as Robin. Well, he did dress as Robin. That's another bird. That's right. <laughs> the Robin. <laughs> okay. We're, we're riffing here. Um, yeah, this one is, uh, is, is uh, apparently drawn from her experiences uh, with Andy at the factory. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this is a particularly uh, fond kind of portrait that she's drawing. Which, again, you know, she, we don't know if this actually is about Andy Warhol because she doesn't say it in the lyric or anything, but that's kind of the, the legend surrounding it. But it's interesting to see yet another person because Lou had his experiences, obviously. John had his, and now here's Nico with hers. Like, a lot of the people that seem to run in that scene come away from it with sort of a negative impression of what was going on and what was being done to them at that moment in time. The falconer is sitting on a summer sand at dawn, unlocking flooded silver cages, and with a silvered in her eyes, all the lovely faces and the lovely silver traces erase, the lovely silver traces erase my empty pages. There's silver, yeah, like, I think there was a lot of silver all over the factory, like, sort of foil, and and these um, big floating helium balloons that were just all silver were a big part of his early, that uh, the art he would have been making at the time, early on, um... Maybe and he did also like probably swipe in when he saw something he wanted and 
snatched it. Yeah. The lovely faces, of course. That makes sense if we're talking about the factory. Yes. Screen tests. Indeed. The silver yep. screen. There you go. <laughs> I bet they all felt delicate about him. Because I know Luke definitely felt very sensitive. And I think as much as he might have been, you know, divisive, I, I don't think she walked away being like, I hate that guy. Right. It was probably a mixed love and hate. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Um, it's quite funereal at, at times. Yeah. Funeral procession. Yeah. But that's, I mean, I, I think that's like one of its strengths really because like I don't know how many records you can say like that you'd put on and, and like actually feel something for like just feel like a, a um uh and a visceral reaction to based on just the sounds that are flooding in like so much music you know you can just throw on and just it fades into the background or you just kind of bop along and you're having a good time but this is something that sort of like commands you to interact with it and you know decide whether or not you're comfortable with it yeah, it's an unsettling beauty. Yes. <laughs> it's like walking into a giant church. Um, it really has this feeling of like, you, you, even just talking about it, it's hard to uh, riff in the same way, I think, as I would be inclined to do because there's very little, I don't think that there's any humor on this album, um, but that's okay. <laughs> Sometimes even when... Sings. When her son sings, it sounds really serious. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. The, <laughs> he's, that one is insane. He's dead serious about being the little tiny, the little knight. The, <laughs> the little the tiny French yeah. knight. Yes. Uh, well, on that note, third track, maybe, My Only Child, which presumably is about Nico's only child, Ari. My only child, be not so blind. See what you hold There are no words, no ears, no eyes To show them what you know Their hands are old Their faces cold Their bodies close to freezing their feelings find the morning smile too small to fill their ways with breathing the evening tall Did you know who the father is? I was kind of mind blown when I found out. I think it's Elaine Delon. Yeah. Elaine Delon, the actor. What an amazing thing for, like, can you imagine just like your parents are, that's your parents? Well, I mean, what poor, poor guy, you know, he's still not well. Yeah. He, uh, Ari, Nico's son. Yeah. Yeah. Delon was not, yeah, I think he around, ended up. Uh, and I think denied uh, that he was the father. And I think he ended up ultimately being Ari, you know, Nico's son, ended up being raised by Delon's 
parents or mother or something, um, you know, at least in like a co-parenting sort of situation with along with Nico. Seems like, you know, could have been challenging circumstances to grow up in, uh, you know, at, at that time. I think that maybe their relationship, which happens with a lot of mothers in a situation like that, was more like sibling. Nico and Ari, you mean? Yeah, yeah, they were more like close, like um, in a way that that he probably had to take her, take care of her at times, and you know, vice versa. Like, yeah, I feel like the the relationship staying so close for so long, you can kind of tell that it was. Yeah, we can't really figure what he had to witness, especially when you see the old Velvet Underground footage of him just kind of playing around in boots, right, looking a little like unkept with the rock band. It's like, yeah, he probably saw and experienced so much stuff to the point by like reaching adulthood and not actually being able to relate to many other people. Yeah. It's his crazy circus family, you know? God, yeah. Imagine just growing up like in the factory it's like, world. It's, kind of goes, it's like the objectively the coolest possible thing to happen to you. And it's not a good thing necessarily at all. It's like <laughs> cool thing can be quite um, cold. This one, my only child, might be one of my favorites because it, it's like just I feel like because it's just vocal and drones and kind of like, you know, old timey, like medieval kind of songstress vibe. It's almost like her voice kind of shines the best on this mm-hmm. one. Where she's just kind of able to like relax into the grace of having this very kind of ancient, old sounding voice and not have to like kind of put on any affectation to seem more modern. Mm-hmm. Right. She actually sings like really perfectly in key, which I say this with love isn't always like what she's going for, you know, but um, yeah, (laughs) this one is like particularly resonant um, and particularly beautiful. I I like this one a lot. Their hands are old, their faces cold, their bodies close to freezing their feelings fine. The morning small The evening tall The the way that it talks about or kind of implies the relationship of the of her and uh delon but kind of being this uh empty thing um that like it, it kind of seems to obliquely reference that and at the same time really like dignify and honor um ari with there are no no words no ears no eyes to show them what you know and uh the line that sticks with me i think one of the ones the most is about um at home, yeah, man and wife are feasting the time, the time that lies behind at home in sweetness and delight, drinking the bitter wine. Bitter wine. Bitter wine. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's tricky. I kind of feel like I, yeah, I don't want to go on record publicly making a bunch of assumptions. But <laughs> going to Lindelon, but I think it's safe to say it probably was a pretty, um, 
pretty hot moment <laughs> in terms of two people being attracted to each other and yeah. <laughs> maybe, um, because they're both like the hottest people in the world. Um, yeah. Do we talk about that? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a safe subject. You, mean, you can't not is say that, it. Is that the bitter wine? Is the bitter wine that they're both like just so attractive and broken inside? I don't know. It really is. Both smoke shows and both completely fuck mad. <laughs> One of the probably craziest like uh, moments of uh, in terms of just hot people of all in in history. It's a great historical hot people moment. Is the fact that this happened? Um, and uh, let's hear let's hear it for hot people. They don't get enough wins, you know. So we're really happy for them. In yeah, this more, green yeah. Light, more green light. More green light. Yeah, uh, both show the tragedy in being a famous hot person. That's sure. right. It's it's a very challenging role to play. Well, apparently, I mean, this record really is starting to make me think. Like, God, I'm I'm glad that I'm you know not uh, I don't look like uh, Alan Delon. I I, I I don't know. Maybe I'm not. Oh, don't sell yourself <laughs> short, Evan. Oh, right, right. I have my I have my little thing I do, and you know he he has his. Uh huh. I think interestingly, like uh, a strange if we could change time thing. Like I felt a lot of the interviews I've seen with Nico, it's always a matter of her feeling like if she was a man, she wished she was a man because she would have been taken more seriously and her right. being, and, and being a, a woman was always the reason she never felt like she was taken seriously. But if we were to, if she was a man or if she was ugly, it wouldn't have been the same. Right. Mm. I, I feel like people are still into the story and half of the story is that she's so beautiful and yet her music is so, you know, off the beaten path and intimate and kind of singular in a non kind of traditional way. So it's like in some ways, if she really had been ugly and everybody took her music seriously, would we know about her as well? Would she have been invited to be in the velvet underground? Right. Like, That's would a good point. What? You know, and, and in some ways, would she have, come to the conclusion of even making the music she does. So it's like, it's the fact she was a model and the fact she had this, this whole other life kind of before doing music is so kind of integral to, I think how it all played out. Right. Yeah. That it's even imagining an alternative reality. I don't think it would be the same. No, it's it, the, that's totally true. Like she wouldn't have even made this music. It would have been different. And that is, there's something kind of interestingly like tragic, but also um, like a complicated thought there of what if she had been happier and, you know, still had an artistic drive would like, what if this talent she had was put toward something that didn't feel as uh, hurt or um, conflicted or whatever is driving a lot of these, the darker moments. Um, But the complexity and like the the shadowy nature of her songwriting and her whole way of presenting herself is really that's that's so much of what we love about her. I also love when she's in the Fellini movie, La Dolce Vita. What's the one where she La Dolce Vita? Yes, yeah, where she uh, plays a model uh, named Nico. Uh, <laughs> <It's> <laughs> a... She she just showed up on set and he just saw her. He's like, "You're in the movie, duh." <laughs> yeah. But I mean. Like, Anybody that has that, anybody that shows up on set and gets cast in a movie, I mean, yeah, they're going to have some heavy karma, you know. That's a good point. <laughs> if Desert Shore was Nico's heavy karma, then it all had to be the way it had to be. Yeah, it's, I mean, thinking about that, like, it's un, 
I don't know. I mean, it, it seems unlikely or, or certainly less likely that she would have even had the opportunity to make records like this, right? If she had been yeah. a man or if she hadn't been as strikingly beautiful as she was because I think it's on record like Andy wanted her in the Velvets because he wanted someone hot at the front of the band, which was a bunch of like schlubby Long Island guys and John Cale at the time. Uh, and so he need that, you know, they needed some sort of Chanteuse sort of person to front them. Because was a different kind of lady. Oh, uh, she right. was great. <laughs> the, uh, there's such a a funny thing of, you know, imagining, because it, ha- I mean, it just happened that like Mo Tucker was sitting there in the same room as Nico a lot of times. They're just kind of, she's like in the band because she was somebody they knew uh, younger sister sister who can play the the drums and so she's like wearing a sweatshirt and like uh she was like yeah and then she became so important to the band and she's just like sitting there and nico's there i wonder if they talked and if what that possibly could have been like sure they talked i'm sure everybody was a lot nicer to mo than they were to nico that is definitely (laughs) definitely probably true she got to be like like she got to get um you know she was not persecuted being a woman right and i'm sure nico was but that's i think mo was also not sleeping with them that we know of also a good point (laughs) we know of who knows mo's a consummate artist in her own right um for my money absolutely one of the great rock drummers of all time the best one wow (laughs) better than david kemper <laughs> yeah, uh, we we leave that for the other podcast. Um, and yeah. one of the great uh, the great child uh, singers, one on of the great children yeah. of all time, the Oscar for best French child performance <laughs> on a, a avant garde rock album goes to uh, Ari. Nico's son Ari. Ari Boulogne. Ari Boulogne. Yeah. Boulogne. I want to be a Boulogne. <laughs> <laughs> Leave me Boulogne. Je suis le petit chevalier avec le ciel dessus mes yeux. Je ne peux pas me effroyer. Je suis le petit chevalier avec la terre dessous mes pieds. J'irai te visiter, j'irai te visiter. Uh, but yeah, did we get to that song yet? The petition. Here we are. We're at it right now. We're at the doorstep. This, at his little horse. For whatever reason, this just works so good. It just sounds seamless with all the other tracks of the record. It, I mean, it's a little jarring anytime you hear a child singing, but it just makes perfect sense. And I don't know, the French, 
Like I really love when she sings German later in the record, but it's cool that the first time another language is introduced, it's a child speaking French. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's this three song run uh, or the next three song run, whatever you want. This is a French song. The next song is going to be German. Then we're into English again. Then we're back into German. Just like the ability to kind of like switch between languages seamlessly. And I mean, I don't know about you guys. I don't speak French or German, but I feel like I'm still getting... Like I'm still getting it, even though I don't understand what the words mean literally off the page, you know, uh, because of the way that the stuff is put across. And I think in this case, having Ari perform it is, uh, you know, sort of the key to making this song work. Song such as it is, it's, you know, it's 70 seconds one, long. It's such a cute little song. Uh, it's one minute, one minute, 13 seconds. And it's just Ari and uh, presumably John playing a little tiny harpsichord. Yes. Yeah, that's that's John. John is credited on this record as all instruments except for the trumpet. Uh, and then it's Nico on vocals and harmonium. And uh, I don't know who plays the trumpet, actually. <laughs> Who's this Joe Boyd guy? He's that's... like the other guy that worked on the record that's American. Maybe he's just the engineer and he just sat there silently like, oh, I guess I'm getting paid to do this. Let's go to the tape. Oh, you know Joe. what? This is interesting. You mentioned Fairport, Con- Fairport Convention earlier, Natalie. He was on uh, some of their records. Um, yeah, that's the connect, for sure. There you go. Uh, he was on Pink Floyd Records. Uh, he was on Soft Machine, Nick Drake. Okay. There's so some Nick Drake here. Real, real bona fides in the uh, sort of left field uh, English rock scene. Yeah, no, I definitely I feel like if they had all been friends, it would have been different. But I guess because she's so distinctly not English... That scene, I don't. I doubt they like embraced this record. What do you guys think? I don't. Yeah, yeah I, I think you're right. I mean, th- there's a question <laughs> that comes to my mind: is like, um, you know, even if she had been a man, I don't think this record is for most people. Like this, this record yep. is so uh, far out there. For it seem, it really feels like it's for fans of avant-garde music um i think that's for it's for herself is the thing like and i think that's what's so admirable about it is like the first record which had clearly been so manicured and prepared for you know kind of a record buying public that was looking for a very specific kind of feeling and sound from someone that looked like nico just her throwing that in the shitter and saying this is not what i'm about in fact these next couple records this is what i'm about and it sounds like this is so like, I don't know, it's just, it's badass. I mean, it's a quantum leap, like, creatively. It's really, like, it's a shocking thing to, to hear because it feels so fully realized. She feels uh, on this, on both those records, um, even on um, Marble Index, too, it's just like, they, they didn't let you do this, like, in the studio. There was, like, <laughs> a 12 dudes who are just kind of, like, micromanaging her. And then as soon as she gets the chance, uh, she's, like out in wherever this is you want to talk about the cover a little bit i think this is from a film which i don't know if you can access or see but i'm really curious about it yes yeah it is from a movie um i forget what it's called uh can pull that up the inner scar by philippe gorel which starred nico gorel and her son ari as well the inner Uh, scar it's a 1972 French film uh, filmed in Egypt, the United States, and Iceland. Film featured five songs written and performed by Nico. Oh, so a lot of the music from this record was actually in the movie. 
and the movie ended up coming out a couple years after. Zero indication about what this movie is about or what it includes, Uh, but there you you have it. It's kind of like a a station-to-station type deal where you've got like the still from the movie Bowie was in as the record Mm. cover. I'm going to find this and watch it. And it's going to be unwatchable. Yeah, it's going to be completely unpleasant. <laughs> uh, I do love the um, the pattern behind oh, yeah. the uh, the the still and just like the very dramatic but uh, classical kind of like styling of Nico Desert Shore in this like blood red kind of font. It's a really um, I don't know I think I think the the way that it's designed suits the music pretty well mm-hmm. um, more so than the Marble Index does honestly which I feel like plays a little bit more into sort of like the you know the the uh, myth or the stereotype of Nico as this you know kind of gothic queen uh, this is I think this is a lot more um, evocative of what's going on on the actual disc. It's her son. Guiding the horse. He's the Le Petit Chevalier. There yeah. he is. <laughs> Literally leading the horse. It is a beautiful picture. Having to be a little adult. Mm. Poor kid. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to uh, ask what, like, what was the first Nico record or song or, or just kind of moment with her music that really uh, stuck with you, if you can recall? I think, yeah, it was definitely like Chelsea Girl and like, because I think that the first documentary came out when I worked at a record store. So everybody knew about that record and like these days and Velvet stuff. Um, But yeah, I think it was kind of, I figured, you know, being somebody that had a lower voice, like it's so easy to kind of invent your own past and occupy Mm. it. It was kind of like, you know, dark, as you said, funeral style, harmonious, harmonium, you know, funeral procession. Like I had already kind of felt like she should do that before I had even heard Marble Index or Desert Shore. I was always kind of like, oh, this low voice, like she should be more goth. Right. Mm-hmm. So discovering the Marble Index after that was like, oh yeah, this is like the perfect, this is the sweet spot. And then Desert Shore, um, yeah, just became the one I listened to a lot. But I do think, I don't know, it, it's hard. Like I, I still love Chelsea Girl and I still love, you know, all the different configurations and I still love her stuff with the velvets. I, I don't want to, you know, pretend like this is the penultimate like version she should have always been because it's a really cool unfolding story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that's another crazy thing is just, you know, her life being so truncated just by accident and, and it's such a tragic way. We'd never get to see what happened, what would have happened if she had just kept going and, um, maybe got to a point where she wanted to explore that other side again, you know, uh, I mean, the closest we have, I guess, is, you know, her, she's like uh, covering David Bowie playing, she's playing heroes a lot, like in the years leading up to her death um, and kind of returning to rock music in a big way, mm-hmm. which we'll definitely get to. But um, that was, you know, the I guess, Initially, I think, Ian, you said that she wanted to be, like, doing more rock stuff when we were talking about Chelsea Girls, and then... That was, yeah, what she had said, you know, in some sort of interview about it. Abandoned that, and then does go back to it, but um, it's a shame that we just don't get that many more records to see what she would have done with a full LP. Yeah, yeah, Heroes is on Drama of Exile, which is not the next one, you know, after this is the end, but... Uh, 1980 
80 or 81 or something like that. Um, so like she, I think was trying to sort of move into still another direction, you know, a few years later, you know, obviously I guess a decade after this record came out because a lot of the seventies were sort of a challenging period for her. Um, but, um, yeah, I think the, the way that she's able to sort of, uh, inhabit so many different, um, personas and, uh, artistic kind of, um, feelings or, or, um, uh, vibes throughout her career is part of what makes her such an extraordinary artist and also kind of links her up to all the other people that we talked about on the show. Yeah. Like she's, she is, you know, just as big of a beast as, as all the others. Exactly. I just wish we had like a recording of her and Jim, like singing at each other while they're tripping balls in the desert. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's such a beautiful yeah. thought actually. <laughs> like reading and her cover. Blake. Her cover end is like so good. Yeah. So perfect. It's almost like she kind of championed that too. Oh yeah. It's the point of resonance. That's like the connect. I think that for a lot of uh, music snobs, we can uh, point that like people who hate the doors, that's the, the gateway from for a snob who's anti doors. Do people really hate. Do people do, really hate? Are there anti doors oh, people? Are there anti doors people? Yeah, some of these. Pe- yeah, it's like some people are totally allergic to it. They're a very divisive band. Um, I don't have a, one of a feeling like that, but uh, no, you know, I I can kind of see why. But there you go. Like there was, Nico was able to see something in that, and he was able to see something in Nico. I, I know why people hate the Doors. Why do people hate the Doors? I mean, it's a lot of things. I think people think that Jim Morrison was just a pretty boy. Mm. And I think that they only have their records to base off of, mm. which in a lot of ways, I love their records and I think they're brilliant, but they are very much of a certain time. They are in right. some ways dated. And in some ways it is kind of like, yeah, it, it's something that you know became so commonplace that it could seem a bit pedestrian, but I, I don't think people knew what he was doing at the shows and how groundbreaking that was and mm. kind of how loose that was. And, you know, just, he's kind of like the, the grandfather of like modern punk in a lot of ways. He had a big impact on Iggy pop. He had a big impact on Danzig, like all these huge uh, singers really drew a lot from him. And he actually drew a lot from Van Morrison. Now you're speaking our language. <laughs> oh, Van Morrison and was just like, oh, that's how you do it. You know, but like, I just see it, like, people don't know because I don't think they played the doors a lot on classic rock radio on the East coast. Mm. Um, it's, it's like there's certain places where it wasn't like interjected into the lexicon of classic rock that makes just sense. by way of like top forties radio stuff. So then if it's like, if it missed you and then you hear it, you're going to be like, this sounds cheesy. Like if you miss the the whole, the whole story and the magic behind like, yeah, the fact they were film students and the fact that, you know, Jim was this radical poet who didn't even really want to be like a bluesy musician guy. I think it's just, yeah, it's actually quite underground. And so my theory is people hate it because they don't get it. Right. And I, love, <laughs> I love turning people. <laughs> well, I, I think that that connection with Van Morrison is amazing because that seems to be something there's like something there with like Nico with uh, with Jim Morrison and with Van Morrison that there's I just that's funny. Yeah, they're brothers, they're, Jim and well, Van. They're, they're brothers, <laughs> but um, that, that there's a spiritual quality and something about Van Morrison's music that people, I think, act this, they feel the same way about um, post uh, Astral Weeks and people just look at Van and think 
he's a hack and um, it's corny. No, no, about post astral weeks. Well, a lot of people just you know they post love post like Veden Fleece or something. Sure, but I mean, they, a lot of people love astral weeks and they don't love uh, moving on Skiffle, his new album coming okay. out in twenty twenty. <laughs> right. Are you on Facebook? Yeah, why are you on Facebook? But those are spiritual. A great songs. question. No, but really, they're <laughs> a spiritual. I, I mean, song. throughout, it's still good. there is still a lot of spiritual. Um, energy behind a lot of his music like even on a record where most of the songs are like every day i've got the blues and today i've got the blues again and the blues on <laughs> blues all around blues up and down there will be like a song called like like discerning the mystery or whatever and it'll be about like just william blake stuff it's it's very deep in his bones and and I think yeah, people also miss too that Jim Morrison was into schlock. Like he loved Peggy Lee. He really loved um, Frank Sinatra. It's almost like he was more of like kind of an Anton Lavey. Hmm. Like he was actually more avant garde than people kind of understand because of the time. Like he um, he was he was kind of taking stuff from his childhood. And, and bringing it into the context of like 60s rock and, and nobody was really singing like that and um that to me is also i know we're not supposed to be talking about the doors well, but we can no, do please. whatever nico is also a low-voiced person and in some way she is kind of crooning this really kind of old school song which is so bizarre that like there's not like this weird jazz standard nico phase like i mean what would that's that what we're robbed like? of we, we, like if she nico's triplicate yeah she did is that all there is <laughs> like nico's like harmonium version of that is that all there is would be insane my goodness um but i think that's because she wasn't american and i think the schlock is is very american Right. She said that thing about uh, when John Cale actually wanted her or suggested that she Yeah, he wanted her to do uh, Streets, Streets of Laredo. Of Laredo. Yeah, Sle- Streets of Laredo, classic country cowboy song. She said, I don't do cowboy songs. I don't do cowboy songs. <laughs> yeah, she's and she absolutely doesn't. This record is like anything but that. And I think that we're all just, speaking for myself, trying to dance around uh, talking about this next song because it's in German. I don't really know. (laughs) I'm so glad she sung in German. I think German is a gorgeous language. I don't know why it has this. Sounds great. But I love the consonants of that language and hearing her sing it. Her voice also strangely makes more sense. Yes. beautiful sound I, I i just wish i could have a better grasp of what she means and how she's saying it i confess myself to his spirit a longing consumes his beautiful face which exhausted by goodness is omnipotent his body does not move in a dream he finally forgets his compulsion yeah what, what do you what do you got on that evan <laughs> you know uh, natalie exhausted by his goodness um yeah, I mean, is it? It's an interpretation of God. Abs- what's what's the title mean? 
How does uh, it translate? It means farewell. Huh. You know, it's this is a reach, but it could be about um, either someone's death or or of like a post-coital type thing. Hmm. Like uh, the little death they say the farewell like exhausted by goodness um like the spent nature of um that situation in a positive way um i see that maybe it's a very heavy feeling it's about jim morrison yeah exactly oh it comes back to jim it's like the jim crystal ship yeah the (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't know i i I really need to like re refocus reacquaint myself with the doors uh and really just remind myself like there's a deep spiritual core here where he he did something incredible which is convince and or help to encourage nico to make this music um because i guess that's what seems to have happened in a way is that you know if she did want to make a rock record early on what let her led her to do this it seems was jim morrison kind of trying to let her help her relax into doing something that felt more like close to her heart and wasn't um wasn't just trying to show that she could do whatever and else was doing yes he also wasn't like a huge druggy person like i think a lot of people kind of play into him being a crazy druggy guy but he really was predominantly like a drinker hmm. and i don't think he was you know like and that's I think why he died is he OD'd because he wasn't used to it. He didn't know how much to do. Mm. Um and yeah, I don't know. I know that Nico probably had some issues with heroin. Later on very much so especially. Um, Even I think during this this time there's there was a yeah. quote from uh Marble Index where she said um uh, that like she and John just spent the entire time in the studio just shooting up together. <laughs> yeah, John too. <laughs> talk John about a not... couple of talk about a couple of bad influences on one another. <laughs> yeah, John was about like 15 years at least uh or no, maybe 10. I don't know when he st- really got fully clean, but it wasn't till like the mid 80s at least. No. Um, the next song a lot. I, God, <laughs> I, I think this next song is really um, one of the best she's she ever did for and mm. at least one of my favorites. Cease to know or to tell or to see or to be your own. Cease to know It's fantastic song, Afraid, yeah. Yeah, it's really, it's it's kind of reminds me a lot of like a Paris 1919. Totally. And 
it's yeah it's a nice kind of synergy of like everything else is so gothy and funeral and but this song has a, a little bit of a lightness in its step yeah it's a, it's a really striking kind of moment of levity in this you know uh overwhelming kind of uh, uh oppressive sounding record at times um you know, we just got out of this super heavy song in German, and now all of a sudden it's just like beautiful little piano ballad in English. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, it, it it's that. And at the same time, the lyrics, I think that this is a really kind of naked sort of probably the, the most forward kind of song um, or more most straightforward song um, that she includes on this record. Um you know, about her kind of experience in her world at this time. Uh, have someone else's will as your own. You are beautiful and you are alone. It's like, damn. Feel that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know if it's, uh, there's interpretation that's all about her modeling years, but um, the first time I heard it, I it was I just thought that line, you are beautiful and you are alone is kind of just a, uh, it feels bigger than just her story in that moment. It feels like a really existential, existentially stirring few words. Um, it's like really, really something. Beautiful song. Next one is, Ian, you know how to pronounce this. Mutterlein, right? Yes. All right. I think. <laughs> <laughs> About her mother, uh, who had just passed at this time, or was in the process of passing. I forget exactly when it happened, but um, it was, she was aware that things were kind of, you know, moving in that direction. Uh, and so, you know, uh, talk about funereal. This is uh, this is the one. I think, dear little mother, now I may finally be with you. The longing and the loneliness redeem yourself in bliss. The cradle is your home dress, afloat your glory in bliss, walks your heartache and reaches into the victorious flood. These these lyrics sound so like really kind of um, florid, you know, reading the English translations of them as opposed, as opposed to some of the songs that are in English. Like it's, I, I guess that's the problem with translation, you know, moving from one language to another. It's never going to be a perfect one-to-one uh, -one copy. But um, I don't know, it, it almost seems like when she's writing in German, she's kind of like... Uh, doing so with a different poetic style than she's doing in English or presumably in French as well. Uh, it's a fascinating kind of concept. Another flashing chance at bliss, another <laughs> kiss. That is the doors. Yeah. <laughs> that is the doors. <laughs> I can't stop making it about the doors. <laughs> I got to go back to the doors at some point. Cause that, well, we're, if you want to come on for the door, like, I feel like we're just dancing around it at this point. We we've got, got a bunch of people doors. lined up. No, guys. I, was, I'm, I love Nico and, and she's the best. And the funny thing about me talking about the doors is it's a more recent thing 
the the kind of digging into the doors thing. So that's the only reason it's on the tip of my mind. You've gone into the doors as like an adult, you mean? Yeah, I mean, like as a kid, I, I liked the music, but I had no idea about the context. Right. And um, the funny thing about Nico is I knew about the context before I knew the music. Mm. The story in the documentary that came out was so, um, you know, like known, like she was such a mythical kind of creature. Being, yeah. And I think the myth is really given legs by records like these, which really feel like there is something you don't understand uh, when you're listening to it. It feels like um, <laughs> literally in terms of the I language, mean, literally sometimes. in terms of language, but in terms of it feels like um, some kind of sacred, mysterious text and ceremony and um, some rites are being done that feel genuinely out there genuinely otherworldly and um anything that you know there, there's the look that she has which i think people you know usually describe as like icy and and sort of almost ghost-like and then to know that when she writes a song it's this um it's like that is uh not a normal type of person that is not like the type of person you see in any context in any field every day that is part of what i think this is so like cool about this record and these records is like they sort of seem to exist completely like detached from any sort of scene you know like i i i this could just be my own ignorance here but i don't fucking know of any other records from 1970 that sound anything like this like it, it really feels like she could have put this record out like at any point in the last 60 years and it would have been as um, uh, connected to whatever was going on in the zeitgeist, in the culture, as it happened to be as in 1970. You mean? Well, exactly, which is like virtually zero connection. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, maybe that's part of the, the tragedy with the records is I, I don't think they sold very well and I don't think they were critically no? received very well <laughs> either. Um, but uh, it is, um, you know, it, it's, it's wild. It's of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think critically now they're really well received. Well, now they are, exactly. But I think at the time, people, I, I think Rolling Stone gave it like a, a two stars yeah, well, or something like a, that. A rock and roll magazine. Well, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> it, what I was saying earlier, I think, is I think people who are more familiar with like uh, avant-garde classical music, this is not that it was written to be for them, but I think that's the type of listener who would respond to it most positively is someone who has some you know literally john kale is doing all these arrangements and i think her what she's done here is really amazing as a lyricist you know kind of bringing some version of pop or rock lyrics as a general approach into this avant-garde almost chamber context yeah which is feels like she's breaking some kind of genuinely new ground all over this record Definitely. and the previous one. Definitely. A made-up past. Kind of yes. interesting what the past might have been like. That's a good, that's a good way maybe, to conceive maybe of it. Maybe it just is like she's, yeah, she really does feel like a wanderer and she's in Egypt on the cover because she's not really from anywhere and she's, you know, singing in German, but there's also, yeah, there's a lot of Eastern drone and kind of whole scale stuff going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does feel like she kind of is everywhere and nowhere as a 
a citizen, and apparently she owned very little, especially when she was touring toward the end of her life. She had like a leather bag, some books, drugs, and motorcycle boots. Really? She didn't own property or any kind of estate or anything? I mean, as far as what she kept as like oh, material I, possessions, whoa. she was, apparently didn't have a lot. She's I a minimalist. That might have had just as much to do with, uh, you know, her uh, heroin addiction as it might have yeah. with any other sort of philosophical approach to but life. Like poetically, I mean, it just it seems like on some level, just her way of being like that wasn't so important to her. Ephemeral. Uh, well, that's maybe a good place to uh, bring it in for a close, this last song. The pseudo-title track, uh, which is not called Desert Shore, it's All That Is My Own, but uh, it does contain the line, Meet Me On the Desert Shore, which she delivers in this really kind of uh, uh, sudden, jarring, almost monotone in the middle of a verse. Um, I don't know, this is one of my favorites on the record. Uh, it's got those stupid little horns that John seems <laughs> to love at this moment in time <laughs> that, are, yeah. that are on the Academy in Peril. Um, uh, but uh, I think it's deployed uh, in, a, in a more artful manner here than it is on that record. I love the percussion too. Very, um, very kind of boomy. Yes. On the shore of the desert. And this one, I think, uh, pulls, uh, uh, musically speaking at least, like this is a clear kind of sonic uh, touchpoint um, or sibling to like Black Angel's Death Song, that chiming but also grating uh, viola there in the background. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, I think this is where you can see like, oh, this is basically half of the Velvet Underground making this record uh, <laughs> at this point, you know? Well, it's this important aspect of the Velvet Underground that whether it's John doing it, Lou doing it, or Nico doing it, I think that there's there's a theme, something that really sets them apart is that they, you know, a lot of rock music I think is about like having a good time or having a bad time and like I want to cry and I want to die or I want to party all night and all the time. And I think they go a bit further, all of them, but Nico especially, into like really not wanting to have like really exploring this lack of connection to what we all see as like the normal world, whether it's Lou and heroin or uh, Nico here on this record, this kind of this willingness to go past the point of like what for other artists is the end of the line. Like, and really this is hard to parse, I think because of how she's really dealing with stuff that no longer has such a hold, not a, a, a more tenuous connection to the world. Desert Shore, what a jam. <laughs> this feels like a record that, uh, like, I don't even know that we can give a star rating to. It just, it's the it's it's Desert Shore. Yeah, we usually do one to three stars because that's um, just the silly way, the way we do things, the serious way we do things, I mean. That's right. But um, yeah, I'll give it three. I mean, three, three <laughs> okay, like sure. three stars, like one trillion million miles away into the in the blackest depths of space. Yeah, black void, black hole stars. Yeah, black red, hole sun. Three, three red giants. <laughs> yeah, three, yeah, three white dwarves. Uh, 
Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. This was so uh, for having me. I love talking about this time and and the people, and I love you know kind of making big assumptions based on the funny little pieces of evidence we have. You know, listen, that is what we are all about here on this. <laughs> Our bread and butter here on Jokerman Podcast, <laughs> saying completely uh, unprovable bullshit based on uh, uh, reading uh, the tea leaves and sheep's entrails of lyrics from sixty years ago. Yeah, it yeah. sounds like something she did a lot of if you just heard this record. <laughs> exactly. If Nico had a podcast. Ah. <laughs> oh my god. I'm trying to imagine that. It would be yeah, I think I think it would be like about it'd be like these William Blake like gothy teleplays or like radio plays or something. Or it would just be her kind of talking shit on everybody. That would be fantastic. Maybe that would take like eight hours. And eight episodes to really get it all out because I'm sure she had something to say. But no question. And um, I mean, you could just listen to read the phone book, and that would be entertaining, just well, based I mean, on that delivery alone. This yeah. record is like the closest thing to a Nico podcast that we have. So <laughs> you know, this is what she's uh, putting into. Um, you know, that that is all we have. We have the work that the artists leave us, and I think people have criticized us for not being very well studied, but at a certain point no one ever really knows what was going on and this is something she thought a lot about clearly put a lot yeah. of thought into and so probably the best way to get to know nico is to think a lot about this record and the others i want to be like bob dylan <laughs> that's the, the one nico joke everybody likes to make is she apparently said she wanted to be like bob she, and they're trying she, to make her, she succeeded you know? she did you know Way more than way. almost anybody ever does. She's got the spirit of like, fuck y'all, you know? Absolutely. And I mean, Chelsea Girl to Marble Index to uh, Desert Shore to The End to Drama in Exile to whatever the last one is. I forget the name of it. But like, that's basically like a speed run of all of Bob's different directions over the last 60 years, just in like six records. For sure. Joker women. Y'all by me. Desert shore. Meet me on the desert.
Bye. 